Connor Fields, three Olympics, three different stories, three very different outcomes. Connor, you've journeyed from kid racer to gold medal Olympic champion in the sport of BMX. You've known success at the highest level. You've also experienced some of the biggest challenges that the sport can throw at you. Elite athlete, public speaker, TV show host. And did I say Olympic champion? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. It's a privilege, and I'll start by declaring an interest. BMX is my sport. It's the one thing that truly makes me feel alive. So it's a privilege to understand how one of the greatest BMX racers of all time approaches the sport, approaches success, and also approaches failure. Perhaps let's start at the beginning. What brought you to the wonderful sport of BMX? Uh, I kind of just discovered BMX by chance. Um, I was a kid. I was seven years old, and I just liked to ride my bike around the street as kids do. And my mom found a flyer uh, at the local bike shop advertising the local racetrack. And I had endless amounts of energy and she figured, hey, maybe this would be a good way for him to burn off some steam. So she took me out. We watched some racing. And then the next week I tried it and I was pretty much hooked from day number one. So you tried racing within one week of getting on the track. Yeah, that's one of the things, you know, that's different in the U.S. versus Australia or Europe. Uh, they kind of throw you headfirst into racing. You don't really start just by riding. It's it's racing. So I jumped out there. I got uh, fourth place in my first race that I did. Um, I still actually have the trophy in 1999, and uh, I loved it. I, I played other sports as well until I was about 10 or 11. Um, you know, as most kids do, I played soccer, baseball, uh, you know, American football, things like that. Um, but when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I just decided to focus on BMX. And I liked, I really liked that it was an individual sport because I was always hyper competitive. And if I win or I lose, it was on me. And I didn't like in the other sports having to rely on other people's performances to dictate the outcome. Yeah, yeah. And I've watched a lot of videos and your parents talk about the endless energy that you had and the fact that they had to keep you occupied. Um, but it's great that they put the time into allowing you to try all these different sports. How influential have they been in, in you know, as your career progressed, supporting you in your goals? Yeah, I mean, they were obviously the most instrumental, right? Like, uh, I, I'm very thankful for what my parents were able to do for me, which is they provided the opportunities. They took me to practice. They signed me up for different sports. They gave me an opportunity to try to figure out what I liked. Uh, but they never forced me to do anything. And they never got mad if I didn't race well or play well. They really just focused on the lessons that sport could teach you, such as you know work ethic, being a good sport, um, being a good teammate. You know, respecting your equipment, things like that. So the only times that I would get in trouble as a kid is if I gave up and I quit or, you know, I, I was a bad sport and I refused to shake somebody's hand after a game or something like that. <clears throat> and I think that that was the, um, the, the best. I think that that is the best approach. You know, when you're eight, nine, ten years old, nobody knows if that kid is going to make anything of themselves with that sport. Uh, but you can always learn how to be, a better human uh, 
through the lessons that sport can teach you. So I'm very thankful for them for that. So in those early days, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 years old, your parents were very much coaching you around your behaviors, how you approach sport and how you, how you learn the lessons. Was anybody taking an interest in you from a technical perspective in terms of how to be faster and how to win more races? Or was it more about the lessons you could get from participation at that point and you just happened to be good? Uh, I think it was a bit of both. I think you know, my my parents were smart enough to know that they didn't understand the intricacies of BMX racing. They didn't know the X's and O's and the technique. So they would, you know, sign me up for classes or clinics or coaching or whatever, uh, whenever I had the opportunity so I could learn from people who did know more about the sport. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories is my dad tried it once. It was like a Father's Day race when I was like eight years old. He took four laps, he crashed twice, and he broke his ribs. And from that moment on, he said, son, that was the scariest thing I've ever done. I will never tell you how to do this. And uh, they just, you know, he was smart enough to know that he would sign me up for some coaching with somebody who didn't know what they were doing. And thinking back to those early days, who were some of the coaches that uh, that attended or ran those clinics that you were at? There were some local local uh, older riders, like experts that weren't necessarily pros that I would do when I first started out and I was just getting the hang of things here in town. And then I, you know, I went to clinics with, you know, Bubba Harris as a kid or Ken Cools or, you know, super camps or, you know, whatever uh, was coming through town or within a few hours drive, you know, I loved it. And my dad and my mom, they loved that I was dedicating to something and pushing myself and trying to be better. So, you know, they were willing to provide me with the opportunities to continue to, to better myself. And in those early days, so, you know, starting in 1999, it's going to be almost 10 years before BMX appears in the Olympics. What were your initial goals and aspirations? Was it just to be the best at every race you turned up to? Did you go from regional to national? Yeah, I mean, I was a kid, right? So I, when I was 11, 12 years old, I wasn't thinking long term about, you know, career and and what i was going to do with my life right i just wanted to go ride my bike with my friends hit the jumps and you know maybe win the next race um but i was always very result oriented i was always very goal oriented i was always very competitive you know it didn't matter what sport i was playing i wanted to win um and that is why ultimately you know i decided on the individual sport is because i could control that outcome a bit more and you know i was very hard on myself even at a young age about you know, if I didn't get a result that I wanted, I would be upset and, and angry and cry and, and not happy with it. And I just wanted to, to be the best. I don't know, you know, what that is. I think that was just something I was born with. Um, I just had a deep drive to, to try to be the best. And then it wasn't until uh, 2008 when BMX made its debut into the Olympics. I was uh, 15 years old. Uh, I watched BMX racing at the Olympics that I kind of decided, okay, this is what I really want to do. Um, you know, at the time I was 15, I was racing at the national level already against, you know, the other top 15 year olds around the country, but I hadn't really thought long-term. I wanted to be a pro just because I loved this sport and I, you know, the pros are my hero. But at that point in time, I was like, all right, this is real. This is something I want to do. And that was kind of when I went to that, uh, that next level and started taking things Olympic level serious at, at 16 years old. And what does that look like for a 16-year-old to be then Olympic level serious? 
Uh, well, I think it was a difference, but you know, what, what I thought was Olympic level series at 16 was a bit different than what I thought was Olympic level series at 26, but I just trained every day as hard as I could. You know, it didn't matter if I was lifting weights in the gym, if I was at the track, if I was doing sprints, if I was, you know, running stairs, it didn't matter what I was doing. I wasn't training properly. I wasn't doing all the right stuff, but I was just working myself to exhaustion every single day. Uh, I would study film, and and this is back in the days of DVDs and, and VHS tapes, right? And I would watch film over and over again, and, you know, I would analyze the pros, and I would figure out um, where they were weak, what the things that I could beat them was, because uh, I wasn't going to beat them with strength because I was young, uh, you know, but, you know, this person leaves the, the, the door open and turns. He goes too high. This person doesn't hit this type of jump. Uh, very efficiently and i just microanalyzed them and figured out how to beat them um as well as you know just every race i did just trying to win and and treating every single race with the highest level of seriousness that i could so thinking back to that that micro analysis all the way through your career when you go to major races have you picked apart all of your opponents in terms of how they might approach it? Or do you play out generic scenarios of this might happen on the track, that might happen on the track? Or do you actually think that person might do that thing and here's how I might counteract that? You know, all athletes are different, but I know myself well enough to know that I'm a thinker um, and I like to be aware. So I always knew my opponent's strengths, weaknesses, their tendencies, how they rode especially the guys that I raced with for long periods of time. I mean, I raced Joris Day for 13 years. So the number of times that I've ridden behind him, you know, has got to be in the hundreds, if not the thousands. So I know exactly his riding style, where he's going to go, what he's going to do. Um, and I'm sure he feel, feels the same way about me. So I like knowing that. Um, and then I also like having, you know, plan A, B, C, D, E, F. When I would go into a race, obviously plan A is you're out in front and you win easily. But, you know, what's plan B? What's plan C if that doesn't work out? And you always have a plan. But part of being a, a good athlete is that you can adapt and you can figure things out on the fly. So it sounds like you're figuring a lot out for yourself at this point in time. At what point from 16 onwards do you start to get into any formal coaching? Um... I had uh, some formal coaching at like 17, 18, and that was more in the form of just like a, a training program, like a coach providing me a piece of paper saying to do this many sprints, this many squats, this many gates, but it wasn't hands-on. It was just following a plan. Uh, but when I was 18, 19 years old, it was the first time I ever had like hands-on formal day-to-day, -day, somebody in the gym with me, somebody at the track with me doing some coaching. And uh, that really helped take me to the, the next level. And who was that you were working with at the time? Um, well, when I was getting the, the programs, the pieces of paper, that was German Medina, um, who is now the head coach for uh, USA Cycling. Um, and was coach for Columbia for many years before that. And then when I started getting formal training at that time, the head coach for Team USA was Sean Dwight. And so I worked with him uh, when he was coaching the Team USA team. So as we start to run into London 2012, you're 18, 19 years old. So you're part of the Team USA camp at this point. Is it? Have you been identified as a potential for the Olympics at this stage, or are you still snapping at the heels and trying to cement your place? Kind of. So there was an interesting time in Team USA, if you think back to the lead-up to London 2012, 
because the Beijing team in 2008 got silver and bronze. And then the guy who didn't, the third man who didn't medal was Kyle Bennett, who is still today the only three-time world champion in the sport. Uh, and they were all, you know, late 20s at that time. So they were in there what, you know, theoretically would be their prime. Um, so there was a whole crop of the next generation. That is the, the myself, Corbett Shaw, Nick Long, David Hermans that were kind of looked at as the next guys up, but leading into London, they were really supporting the Beijing team because, you know, for all intents and purposes, they should have still been um, the guys. But the young generation was able to push the old generation out sooner than expected. Uh, I won a World Cup in 2011 at 18 years old. You know, Nick Long was podiuming World Cups in 2011. David Herman was podiuming World Cups in 2011. And 12 as well. And, you know, we were 19, uh, 21 and 22. And we pushed out the 27, 28 year olds a lot quicker than I think anybody expected. Why do you think that was on the run up to 2012? And I know from an Olympic perspective, the tracks were big, the tracks were fast. The supercross tracks at the time from a World Cup perspective seemed to be evolving very quickly. And, and, and in those years running up to 2012, there was actually some real crazy tracks that were built for, for periods of time. And you'd switch on and you'd watch an indoor race from Madrid. And I think all of a sudden there's a step up, step down that's appeared from nowhere. So the tracks were getting quite big and crazy. Was that a factor in pushing some of the old guard out? Um, I don't know if that was necessarily it because, you know, somebody like Mike Day was one of the most talented, skilled bike riders ever, you know, as was Kyle Bennett. I think it was more because you know we started riding those tracks when we were younger whereas they had to transition from traditional bmx to supercross when they were in their mid-20s we started riding supercross in our teens so we that was just what we grew up with it was just the norm so i think we attacked those tracks a bit more and were more aggressive as well as we had a an earlier start to, you know, taking things really seriously. Um, I think that's kind of what, what helped push them out a little bit and uh, really just took the sport as a whole to the next level. Cause if you watch from 2008 through 2012, like the level of bike riding across the globe just exploded um, because, you know, people just started to, get a little more comfortable on those tracks and take things a little more seriously. And it was the second iteration of the Olympics. So people knew a little bit more what to expect. So what's the selection process look like on the run into an Olympic event? It's been different every single Olympics for team USA. It's never been the same once, but, uh, in 12 and 16, there was like the highest ranked rider got a spot. The winner of the Olympic trials got a spot. And then the third spot went to a committee selection of the riders that were left. Which was your spot for 2012? I won the trials in 2012, and there was all sorts of drama behind that one. Uh, there was eight races that were counting for points on the points series. I won five of the eight. Uh, another rider was consistent and got you know a handful of third through fifth places and just edged me out by a couple of points. I had like five wins and then three races I just laid eggs at, um, and he was just consistent and won. Um, no other rider had scored any points. And so I said to the U S cycling team, I was like, why are you going to make me ride the trials and risk an injury? You know, I'm going to be the coach's pick. I'm, you know, very clear cut. 
why don't you just do the coach's pick first? Let me start preparing for the Olympics like the rest of the world is doing and then make the other riders who, you know, there's not a clear cut third guy, let them race it out for the Olympics. But they didn't want to do that because they wanted me to race the trials. They wanted me to win so that they could pick the rider that they wanted and they could leave, they could have that control. Um, so they kind of forced me to race the trials race in 2012, which looking back, I should have just played hardball with them because there was no way they weren't going to take me, but that affected my entire training and my preparation for the Olympics. And you never know, it could have been, uh, uh, one of the reasons why it didn't, didn't go as well as it could have. That's an immense amount of confidence at that point in your career, moving into your first Olympic event. If I was a fly on the wall in the team USA, BMX offices and your name came up. How do you think they felt about you at that point in time? Uh, I was hard to deal with. I was young and I was uh, immature. I was 19 years old and I, I didn't know what was going on. And I think any 19 year old kid who's being told he's the greatest and he's the world champion and all these things is going to have, you know, similar, uh, similar experiences. So I wasn't the easiest to work with, but what I would say is they knew that I, I would outwork anybody and I was winning races. Like I was the guy that was circled as like the shot, um, leading into the Olympics. You know, I was, I had won three of the final five world cups before the Olympics. I won and I won the time trial world championships a couple months before. And I mean, I made the main event and I was the number one seed in the main event. So I was one gate start away from winning. Um, but they, they would have said, he's hard to deal with. He's a pain in the ass, but he's freaking good. Yeah. That's what they would have said. And uh, what, what did your fellow racers think of you at the time? Because on the circuit, you've got your jokers, you've got your serious people, you know, you've got your people that are perhaps really well liked and perhaps those that are less well liked. Where did you fit? Somewhere in the middle. Like, I didn't like it. This is the same from then, even all the way through. I wasn't there to make friends. Uh, I heard a quote from an old pro when I was a kid and it really stuck with me. He said, your real friends call you on Monday. And of the guys I was racing, there was a few of them that would call me on Monday and a few of them that I was friends with and I had a relationship with and they were my friends, but most of them, I don't care. I'm not going to be sending you a Christmas card. We're not friends. We're competitors. I'm not going to be fake to you. I'm not going to try to, you know, act like well, I'm your buddy. Like, I just won't talk to you. I'm here to, I'm here to take your money. You're here to take my job. That's the way it works. And that doesn't mean that I won't be respectful, shake their hands, say good job, you know, and treat them with respect. Cause I have respect for everybody that's doing what we do. I have immense respect because I know how hard it is, but I don't care if somebody likes me or not. I'm not there to get liked. I'm there to win races, you know, promote my sponsors, earn my spot in the Olympic team and get paid. What does a typical race day look like? You know, with that mindset, winner's mindset in, in mind, you rock up on race day. Race, you know, this practice, racing is going to start a little bit later on, international event, perhaps practice the day before. How do you approach it? What, what is a step me through that day in terms of getting up, nutrition, focus, practice? It, it evolved over time, right? I, the older I got, the more experience I had, the more I learned about nutrition and rest and also just about myself and my body and what worked best for me, right? Like there's an entire process as an athlete of trial and error to figure out what works best for you. Um, but you know, it always started, I'd wake up and I'd always try to eat a big breakfast because the later in the day it gets, the harder it's going to get to eat, the more nervous you get. And then, um, 
you know, I always just tried to relax. I was a very nervous rider. Like I, I always was, you know, feeling the butterflies on race day. It was something I, I liked it. I, it helped me, but it was something I felt. So I do my best to relax until it was time to go out. And then when we got to the track, I was, you know, stepping into the office. And when I stepped into the office, I went to work and, you know, I really just tried to approach my racing and my career as this is my job. And when somebody goes to work, that's not always, they're not going always for fun. They're going to perform a job and I'm going to do everything in my power to perform this job to the best of my ability. And that's kind of the way I approached it. Do you use music, meditation, any particular focus techniques on race day? Yeah, I would always listen to music. Uh, I'd put I'd put headphones on, and it was multiple reasons. One, I liked it and it helped me. But two, when I put the headphones on, nobody would talk to me, and it was a pretty universal symbol for hey, give me some space. Um, and then I had a mental routine that I, you know, dialed in throughout my career, and you know, it was visualization. It was it was deep breathing. It was self positive self talk. It was uh, you know a routine where I would do the exact same thing every single time I stepped into the starting gate. You know, my eyes would look in the same location. My brain would say the same uh, things to myself. My physical body would do the same routine. And, uh, yeah, kind of what I did. Have you ever employed any mantras or anything like that in terms of self-talk or, or, you know, things that you would repeat to yourself? Yeah, but it wasn't mantras in terms of, um, you know, thinking like positive thoughts. It was more uh, cues to get my my body to physically do what I wanted it to do. So for example, um, I would always say head still because that was a bad habit that I had out of the gate is I would pull my head up. So I'd remind myself to keep my head still. Brilliant. And then you just mentioned deep breathing again, any particular technique that you were following there for deep breathing? Uh, by the end, my routine, basically I would close my eyes. I'd look down. I would take three big deep breaths, holding it in, for a second. And then when I finished the three deep breaths, which was kind of my uh, cue to cross over into the zone, after the three deep breaths, I would visualize my lap. Um, and then when I was done visualizing my lap, I would open my eyes and then I would walk up the starting gate. And I would go to the same location every single time. Uh, every every racetrack was different, but at, at the racetrack, I'd do the same location, whether it was the first race of the day or the final. So then we're rolling into 2012. Um, they made you do the trials. You did them. You're on the team. So you're in yep. peak condition, winning all kinds on the way up to that race. How did that Olympics go for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I won my heat. I won my semi, and I was the one seed in the final. And I uh, just, you know, I was so young. I was so inexperienced. I'd never been – I'd never won a championship before. I'd never won a major uh, title before I'd won races, World Cups and things like that, but I never won a championship. And my first shot at winning a championship was number one seed, lane number one of the Olympic Games. And uh, the moment just was a little bit too much for me at the time, and I didn't execute. And I was off just a little bit. It wasn't much, but I was off just a little bit. And at that level, it'll cost you. And uh, there's just nothing I could do. And um, I ended up finishing seventh place in that race. And I think for and, and a lot of listeners to this won't be that familiar with the sport of BMX. 
you've got to be perfect at that level, absolutely perfect, because it's it's milliseconds that will change the face of a race completely. And if you're a millisecond off at the start, you got you know, and you you tend to be an inside pick. That's your favourite. You want to be out there. You want to be fast. You want to be on the inside. But if you don't get that right, you can get boxed, and that's your whole race gone. And it's a really important consideration for people that aren't familiar with the sport how technical it is. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, the races are around 40 seconds and, uh, realistically the, the first one second is the most important of that 40 seconds. And the best way I describe it is, you know, it's like track and field if there wasn't lanes. And so if somebody beats you out of the starting lane, you just jump into their lane and you could block them. And, uh, so if you're off by just a hair out of the starting blocks then someone can jump in front of you and block you. And that's what happened. And it's common. It's normal. I'm not, you know, it was, there's nobody to blame other than myself for missing the start a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's a whole four years of work come down to executing one start. And when you don't execute it, it's done. And in terms of reflecting on that and for, for lessons for other people, whether they be BMX races, whether it be another sport or whether it be in corporate life, the ability to execute when under the most intense pressure have you learned anything since that point? Have you built some resilience? Have you built some mechanisms to say, I can protect myself from deviating from the execution path now? Totally. Um, after that moment, you know, I feared that that moment. Right? I didn't I didn't feel confident that I could get back into that position, whether it's an Olympics or another event, uh, and be in the number one seed, the favorite, and execute. Um, and so it took you know, I had to just continue to put myself in that position. And then I, I had some times where I was successful and I had plenty of times where I wasn't and I, I blew it at a bunch of other events, but then it got to the point after a few years of trial and error, uh, mostly error that I did figure it out. And I think from about 2016 through the end of my career, any time that I was the favorite and that I should have won, and that somebody wasn't just straight up faster than me, I won and I executed. And the mindset just shifted from, you know, when I was 19 in London, I wanted to win. The older I got, the more I learned, just focus on executing to the best of your abilities. And if your abilities are good enough, you'll win. And, you know, look in the mirror at the end of the day and know that you did everything that you could. And that's really all you can do. And um, that's what I got, got good at. And so, so successful execution, does it come down to confidence? Is it the ability to manage out internal chatter? Is it the ability to manage out distractions? What was it that you got better at? I don't think it's confidence necessarily because you could be as confident in your ability, but if you don't execute, then it doesn't matter. I think it was just for me personally, it was reframing to not be so result oriented and you know, not letting my competitive nature take over and it was reframing it to just concentrating on finishing the the day proud of my efforts and proud of what I did and knowing that I executed at my best and then you know from there you look at I want to train so hard and prepare so thoroughly that my best is enough to win if I get my best out I will win and so that was the approach is that in training I gave it everything I had so that my bet my best was a high enough level to win and then on race day I just focused on doing my best Follow the process, execute the steps. Don't worry about the result. When you do worry about the result, I, I think, you know, what you just said right there in theory sounds good, but if you're trying to win something and you're trying to be competitive, of course you care about the result. But 
the the reframe is that you the in order to have the best chance to get the result that you want, focus on the steps. Brilliant. So then we go. Don't be afraid to say it. Don't be afraid to 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 you know. Yeah, I'm I, I'm not training six days a week, pushing myself to exhaustion, sore, tired, eating crap vegetables all the time. You know, I'm not doing all that because I want to get third. I'm doing that because I want to win. And don't shy away from that. What's your favorite vegetable? Uh, peppers. I like peppers. Sounds like you don't like vegetables that much. That was a long pause. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's it's for function. It's, it's not for it's not for enjoyment. So we're rolling into Rio now, and you've got four years. So you've learned an awful lot. You certainly. You know, you certainly made your name in terms of all winning through all the heats uh, and the qualifiers. So, what do the results look like for the next four years as we're running into Rio? Kind of, um, you know, had some ups, had some downs, as you do in a career, right? I I won some races, won some, some championships, finally, and then I didn't win some. I like I was saying earlier, I had some times where I should have won and I didn't, and continue to learn, continue to grow. Um, and I went into Rio this time. I actually broke my wrist on April 1st. Uh, I remember the date because it was April Fool's Day. So nobody believed me when I told them. Um, Where did you broke break my it? Wrist. Uh, Manchester, England. I thought I was, it was. Yeah, that, that track takes a few names. It's a hard surface. It, yeah, it's uh, fine for training. I don't know if it should be holding races. It's a little small. Um, but broke my wrist there. And then this time I was unable to finish the series, so I didn't have a chance to win the ranking. I didn't even get to compete at the trials because my wrist was still broken. Uh, and I got the coach's nomination after proving to them that I could ride a bicycle. Um, now, that day I did take some some shots for the pain for my wrist. could barely hold on. I duct taped my hand to the handlebar, but I proved that I could ride and barely made the team on a discretionary nomination eight weeks out. And what kind of state was was your wrist in between eight weeks out to the event? I could ride and I could hold on. It was still technically broken. Like the doc couldn't legally clear me. Um, you know, and he's like, hey, here's what's going on. If you hit it again, it's going to shatter. But uh, this is up to you. And, you know, if it was any other event, I wouldn't have done it. But, you know, for the Olympics and you maybe get one shot your whole life. If you're lucky, you maybe get two and um i was like i'm not gonna gonna miss out on this and am i right in thinking that surgically you had extra bars put on your wrist just for the event to stabilize it but it reduced your mobility yes so the doctor that i worked with was the head orthopedic surgeon for the u.s olympic team he was very aware of the situation time frame etc and he put four screws in my wrist to stabilize it, to give it a chance to be able to, to kind of hold on and withstand some of the vibrations, uh, knowing that after the Olympics was done, he was going to remove some of the screws to give me back my mobility. Um, luckily for riding a bicycle, you don't need much mobility of your wrist. Um, and so it didn't affect the way that I rode. And then when I went back that December, he pulled everything out. And I don't have full mobility, but I've got most of it. Yeah, I'd say probably half in one of your wrists. Yeah, it goes all the way back. Yeah, but not 
not quite all the way forward. Did you wear a wrist brace? I know wrist brace are quite popular, especially with some of the old timers. Yeah, I did. I wore a wrist brace uh, that did not allow me to bend my wrist back. That way, if I fell again, I'd basically punch the ground and hopefully break fingers instead of a wrist. So, what's it like rocking up in Rio, thinking with a you know bit of a dodgy wrist? So, so, so you're probably not as on fire at this Olympics in terms of your mindset. Totally different mindset. I was just happy to be there. Um, you know, anything, anything else was just gravy on top. Obviously, I wanted to to get a medal, but it was a totally different mindset. It was a lot less pressure this time coming in as just happy to be there versus coming in as the favorite, you know. Um, but I also had the experience of knowing, like, look, it's two different races. Just make the final, and then it all starts over again. doesn't matter if you win everything up to the final or if you get third, everything up to the final. Just make it to the final, and then one time anything can happen. Um, you know, the guy who, who won in London hadn't been riding all that well all day. He just he did enough to squeak into the final and then he executed when it counted. So having knew that, I knew it was gonna be kind of a tale of two races. Because in London, you know, you wanted to win everything all the way through and you wanted to have the the lane pick that you wanted for the final. Mm-hmm. In Rio, pressure was off, just concentrating race by race. When it came to the final, which lane pick did you have? Uh in Rio I had seventh pick. Uh, Nick had already picked lane eight, so my choices were six or seven, and I ended up in six. And then, uh, you know, it was a pretty easy pick. It was one or the other. <laughs> Talk me through that final then. So you're mid pack. You've had you've had a decent day. You've made the main. Pressure's off. Well, no, I had a pretty good day. I mean, I I was getting second place, and uh, I got second place in my first two semis. Um, battling with the guy who had been on fire winning everything. Um, and, you know, even one time, like in the second semifinal, I think pushing him to where, like, had it been a final, maybe I could have pushed a little farther. Um, and then in that third semifinal, I tangled with another rider, which slowed my lap down, gave me that bad pick. But I all I just reminded myself, it doesn't matter. The guy who won in London didn't come out of – one of the inside gates, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. Like everybody's got a shot here. Um, and I had a great start. I was out in front. I just was on the outside cause I was picking late and I entered the first turn in, in second place there. Um, you know, and it all happens so quickly, right? You don't have time to think, but, um, you know, just instinctually, I was trying to pass the, the rider in front who was the other American. Um, him and I were bumping and banging bars on the second straightaway. Um, you know, he, I think got a little bit flustered. Um, he made a mistake. I didn't, I was able to capitalize on it and kind of take over the lead and then work my way safely to the finish line and cross the line, cross the line by quite a margin. Yeah, you know, but in the wise words of Vin Diesel and Fast and the Furious, it doesn't matter whether you win by an inch or by a mile. All that matters is that you win. So how did it feel? How did it feel crossing the line? Uh, You know, it's hard to put into words, but the best way I describe it is take every emotion you've ever felt and turn it up to 10. Happiness, joy, relief, thankfulness, you know, all the positive emotions and turn it up to 10. Shock, um, disbelief. You know, all of it at the same time. 
And, you know, it took months for it to totally sink in. Um, but it was a it was a really, really special moment. Something I can always look back on as well. Tell me about coming back to Vegas as a gold medal Olympic champion. You must have been you must have felt like the king of Vegas. Were you the king of Vegas? I tell you what, if you're uh, gonna win an Olympics and you're over twenty one, I was twenty three years old, but if you're if you're gonna be twenty three and win the Olympics, I can can promise you there's nowhere better to go home to than Las Vegas. How long did the party my, last? My liver just recovered last week. There's perhaps some after dark stories, but yeah, how long did that Vegas party last when you got back? You know, it lasted a couple months. Um, you know, and in hindsight, I wish I would have waited a little longer before getting back into it, but I just was, you know, I had just come off an injury and I wanted to get back into it and keep going. Um, so I, two months and then I was right back into training. Uh, I had surgery and then I was right back into training, but looking back, I wish I would have taken some more time and just, enjoyed it because it's a once in a lifetime type thing um but it was a fun couple of months that is for sure in terms of an elite athlete and and your career and you know all athletes have a finite lifespan competing on their field of choice whatever it is what does winning a gold medal do to your future what doors started to open i wouldn't say it changed much within the sport um but what it did do is it added a bit of credibility outside of the sport um, outside of the sport, I could tell somebody that I was a USA BMX champion and I was, you know, this, that, the other champion, but no one really knows what that means, but everybody knows what an Olympic champion is. And so it was really the outside of the industry doors that opened. Yeah. Cause you can rock up anywhere with a gold medal and you know, the kids want to touch it. They want to see it. They want... Is it heavy? I imagine it's heavy. It's heavier than you think. Yeah. So what did you, you know, in parallel to BMX, did you start looking at some other options for your future at this point in time, or are you still very much focused on BMX and the next Olympics? No, I was pretty focused on BMX and the next Olympics. I mean, I started going to college in 2013, so I just continued to go to school. Um, so nothing really changed there. I mean, the school was easier to work with after I won the Olympics, for sure. They let me miss more days. But uh, outside of that, um, just continued doing what I was doing. And... You know, I was young. I was 23. I was going to be 27, you know, at the 2020 Olympics. And so I was like, I, can, I got another shot. I almost won once. I won once. Maybe I could win again, right? I, I There's no reason to think that I can't put myself in position to at least have another chance to win a third time. Um, so that was kind of my focus. Yeah, and why not? Universities are interesting organizations. You know, they love the kudos that comes with a successful athlete and a, and a gold medal. Um, but before you'd done that, did they really understand the sport of BMX at all? No, they didn't care one bit. And because it wasn't a school uh, sanctioned sport, they, they would not help me one bit. Um, but once I won the Olympics, obviously everything changed and they were doing, you know, anything they could for me because they wanted to build that relationship. So we're moving towards Tokyo 2020. So you want to peak in 2020, but of course something happened that meant you weren't competing in 2020. Um, how did that feel? So COVID delayed the Olympics by a year. Yeah, it was a tough one, right? And I think it is tough for a host of reasons. You know, everybody was like, what the heck's going on? Is the world ever going to be the same? Um, but the thing that was the hardest when it comes to the Olympics is you were, you know, four years of buildup for this event. And now it's okay. It's delayed. But then it's like, is it actually going to happen next year? So now you're training for an event that maybe is going to happen, maybe is not. Um, 
you know, and everybody's got this four-year plan that got thrown out the window. Um, but with that being said, the way I approach it is everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's doing the same thing. Just going to keep going and treat it as if it, you have to treat it as if it's going to happen. And I just continue to prepare for another year. So then it does happen and you go, but you're kind of traveling solo. There's the team, there's no spectators, there's no family. There's, you know, it's a very odd circumstance physically where we are, were you ready for it? Oh yeah. I was in great shape. Um, training camp went, went great. Uh, if anything, I was disappointed in the way the track was built because you couldn't let all your, all your gas out. Um, it was, it was, uh, kind of too peaky on some of the jumps and you had to let off the gas a little bit. And I felt like I couldn't get everything I had out. Yeah. We'll come back to that one. Cause that last jump on the end of the first straight, I know you've said before you had to squash that, you know, it was, there was too much of a lip for the length of the jump. Oh, there's a whole drama on the practice day of, of riders wanting to have them fix it. Um, and they end up not, but it, I was not the only one who felt this way. Just deviating slightly before we get back to the Olympics, how do you feel in this day and age about the impact that a good or a bad track can have on a day's racing? Because we've, you know, so we've seen track builders pushing the envelope, but we've seen lots of instances in the past where we've gone to a World Cup, it's been a new design, and things haven't worked out, and the riders have got together and said, you know, we either go ahead with this or we don't go ahead with this. So you've talked about Manchester indoor being super fast indoor really tight and of course there was that that event where they put a wooden kicker before the jump at the end of the first straight which and and that kind of I, I couldn't believe what happened there but you know some good came of it because I I called it out and um, Tom Ritz was gracious enough to to come and talk to me and I got to know those guys as a consequence of it but that was a weird thing we've seen Papendal when they put the containers in you know we were talking about the Tokyo track how in this day and age, how do you feel about the impact that that can have on a day's racing? Unless it's a matter of safety, I don't have a problem with them doing things. Now, the reason that the wooden kicker in Manchester was a problem was because it was a safety concern. Like you're sprinting full speed at a at a quarter pipe, like that doesn't make sense. Uh, I didn't have a problem with Poppendall's uh, stuff, like. I mean, did it flow? Was it great? Not really, but was it a danger? Like, did it, it looked silly when people were getting off their bikes and climbing. Yes, I'm, I'm with you there. But it wasn't dangerous. Um, you know, even with Tokyo, like the way that I was looking at it, like they asked me if I would want to change. I said yes, but ultimately the track's the same for everybody. And that's part of what BMX is all about is that every track is different. They're not the same. And that's one thing that I, you know, I'm going to be an old man for a minute, but that's one thing I think it's gotten away from is that every track kind of looks the same now. And there's all these parameters that every track has to fit these things and be this way. And um, part of BMX to me is always showing up and figuring it out and having enough tools in your toolbox to make it work. No matter what the conditions are, is it dirt turns? Is it asphalt turns? Is it steep? Is it mellow? Is, you know, what's it like? And you got to figure it out. Um, so unless it comes down to a safety concern um, and it's going to cause riders to get injured, if it's not that, experiment, try. I think it goes the other way in th this day and age with a lot of the tracks becoming so simplified. There's nothing to separate the riders. And it becomes more dangerous in a different way because the riders are all bunched up and they go into these turns all bunched up and then it potentially, you know, causes more risk because they're hitting each other in these turns. 
Um, I think the sweet spot was around that 2014 uh, to 16 time frame, where I think be- between 8 and 12, they went a little bit overboard on some of the stuff. And then I think after 2016, when UCI took it over away from GSX, I think it went back the other way where now it's a little bit too small. Um, and you don't reward the riders who have skill uh, or a higher level of skill. You don't reward the riders who are willing to take more risk. But I think that 14 to 16 sweet spot was kind of the, the place that I thought um, was the right sweet spot. Mm. I'm going to shout out Clark and Kent here, Clark and Kent track builders. I think they're the best track builders in the game. And the 2012 track in London, I like the look of, um, but also just the way it was kept and the way it was maintained. Uh, I thought that produced some great racing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like Clark and Kent. Um I think they make good stuff, but they're riders. And so they they can build from a rider's point of view. And I think there's always an added benefit. I mean, Thomas Hamon is as well, right? He was the guy who built the the Tokyo track. And I like Thomas. I raced him years ago. I, I have I, I don't have anything bad to say about him. But when he built that Tokyo track, there was one lip on every straight that was terrible. And you would think that as a rider, he would know better. Um, and granted, the track's the same for everybody. So it's just you got to figure it out. But whether it was the the jump into the second turn, the jump out of the second turn, or the second jump on the first straight, like those lips just did not fit on the track whatsoever. And uh, I think it, you know, I think everybody's probably going to agree with me on that one. Yeah. Let's talk about the racing then in Tokyo. How did that go? Yep. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> first day was fine. I mean, I. I won my uh, my my heat. It was best of three, and I think I went like three one one or something like that. Uh, maybe two one one. I don't remember exactly. Um, but I remember I felt good. I remember that I was confident. I remember, you know, I got the jitters out. Like that first one is always a bit, you know, you, you get the got to get the first one under the belt. And then by the time the third moto came around, I I felt settled. Um, fastest lap time, first seed in my semi, and then. Uh, I have no no recollection of the second day of racing at all. Um, I watched the video. I think it, it rained, so I think I was a little hesitant because of the rain, trying not to wash out again, just trying to make the main. Um, you know, and then anything happens there. But I, I think I went 3-1, I want to say, in the semis and put myself in a position before that last one where I was basically just racing for gate pick. Um, and then, you know, obviously what happened with my U happened. It was non-intentional he didn't mean to do it his hip hit my handlebar when his hip hit my handlebar it made me turn my bars into the first turn straight to my face straight to a brain bleed and a tube down my throat and waking up five days later in a hospital yeah really serious and obviously with no one being none of your family or friends being there they saw this live on tv and then were struggling for updates for you know a number of hours after that yep yeah, well, so basically, you know, they saw it live. There was, and then they were just getting whatever information was available. They tried to get over. They were trying to figure anything out. Um, it went all the way up the chain to the U.S. ambassador to Japan. It went all. It, we went high on the political chain because there was time when they thought I was going to die, and there was a conversation had with my father that basically said that if he dies, you can fly over and escort his body home. Like that conversation was had with the U.S. ambassador to Japan. Um, obviously I didn't know any of this. I was, you know, I was snoozing. I didn't remember any of this, but it was pretty serious. But then I think after about 24, 48 hours, um, the brain swelling began to subside. 
things stabilized. And then the next question really was like, what conditions he going to be in when he wakes up? Is he going to remember where he is, who he is, what's going on? Um, you know, where's he going to be at? And then uh, when I woke up, I woke up, you know, my phone was by my bedside table. Uh, I'm in the hospital in Japan. Nobody speaks English. I have 600 text messages. Everybody I've ever met is reaching out. You know, I open the internet and, you know, whether it's BBC, NBC, ABC, you know, every major sports thing in the world is like, ah, oh, BMX racer nearly dies, like the whole thing. Um, so I'm just piecing together what happened. And then I, I ring um, my dad and, you know, then, then the Team USA doctor comes in and starts kind of assessing me. And, um, you know, I remembered who I was, where I was, what was going on. But uh, I wasn't like 100% fine. And so, you know, I was in the hospital for a week or so and then flew home directly to neurological rehabilitation, which took about six months. And Team USA takes a whole suite of doctors of the highest caliber in all these different disciplines with the team abroad, don't they? Yep. For the There's an a neurologist, an internal medicine, you know, they one of each. And so I was working with the, the neurologist. BMX is a hyper-fast sport now and, you know, concrete tarmac turns. I think you, you had a front impact uh, on your helmet, I think I heard you say on that one. How how close was it? You know, what, what else would have had to happen for that to be a very different result? If I was wearing the smaller helmet that the Fly Racing Company makes, the bike helmet, the one that Joris or Barry wear, I would have been dead on impact. That's hard to hear. I wear the motorcycle helmet. I always did. I wore the the heavier one that had the maximum amount of uh, protection. And, you know, uh, I figured, no, I, I'd rather have a little bit of a sore neck or have a little heavier of a helmet and never have to say, I wish I was wearing a bigger helmet. Um, you know, 35 miles an hour face first in asphalt. I mean, that's that's a recipe for not good things. But yeah, I mean, it was everything that happened to go wrong. If I had been one inch farther forward or one inch farther back or Romain had cut one inch less over, I'd have been fine. I'd have tucked in, gotten second in that semi, raced the main. Um, you know, so everything lined up exactly to have the worst possible outcome, but everything also lined up with that worst outcome to end up being okay and end up making a full recovery. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I'm very thankful. Um, it's very puts things into perspective for sure. Uh, knowing how close it was, if I hit a little harder, if the doctors don't get to me as quickly, you know, there's a lot of things that could have, somebody behind me runs into my head again. You know, there's a lot of things that could have happened there that would have potentially, you know, made it a worse outcome. So really thankful for the way that ended up. And then we talk about the recovery. And there's a few things I want to get into here. The first thing I want to get into is, so you so you wake up and 600 text messages and everyone wants to know what goes on. And at some point in the weeks after, and I forget exactly when you did this, I remember very clearly a social media post from you that, that essentially said, and you can tell me what I've got wrong here, you know, stop asking when I'm coming back, leave me alone. You know, now is not the time. And BMX is a wonderful sport because it's small and everybody loves the athletes, but everybody feels that they know and own the athletes in BMX. I think it's, it's, it's just a consequence of the sport being smaller than some of the other ones. And of course, everybody was saying, when are you coming back? What are you doing? You know, next Olympics, Connor. 
and and you you felt compelled to actually talk to people and say just give me some space yeah well i think it's one of those things too where you're correct everybody thinks they know you right and it's not even just bmx i think it's just social media in general you know whether it's lewis hamilton or somebody else you know people think that they know lewis hamilton because they see what he ate for breakfast on his instagram you know but that doesn't mean that you can and you read the comments on like you know, big name professional football players or, or Lewis Hamilton's of the world. And people talk to, and you can't believe the way that people talk to them. And, you know, BMX being smaller, you know, some of these names maybe you're familiar, people that maybe I, I've met or people I, I've heard of. Um, but I felt like it was almost insulting because it's like, did you, did you not just watch me bodyboarded off of a track three days ago, four days ago, and now you're saying you can't wait for me to race again. What if I don't want to race again? And, you know, maybe, maybe I knew how serious it was. Other people might not have. And maybe, you know, it just comes from a good place. They're trying to offer encouragement, but it's frankly, it's like, it's not up to them. If I don't want to come back, I don't have to come back, you know? And if they were in my shoes, maybe they would feel the same way that they don't want a bunch of people saying, can't wait to see you race again when you're just trying to make it through the day. Yeah. So how do you start to pick yourself up from that when, as you do come to and you fly back to the USA and I spoke to a friend of mine the other day, Dan Sabuta, um, BMX rider, super fan. You've probably met him at some point, if not, if not more than once. And this was his question. And he said, you know, this is, this is your career's work. You know, you spent four years, on, on the Olympics, and then it's changed in a split second, and it's changed in multiple ways. You know, you didn't get the result you wanted, but now you're in neurological recovery and you're thinking about your future. So how do you start to assess where you are and, and what might happen next? Well, realistically, the first step was just to get my life back, right? Just I had to repass my driver's test. I had to relearn how to enunciate certain words properly, you know, just basics. Um, get released from neurological rehab to go home. You know, things like that. That was step one. I wasn't even thinking about what was next. After about four months of neuro rehab, uh, I was at the point where my body was in good enough shape that I could go in for my shoulder reconstruction surgery. So then I went and got shoulder reconstruction. And then I had five months of therapy for that while I finished my neuro rehab. So come May of 2022, almost 12 months later, you know, 11 months later, now I'm finally able to say for the first time in about a year, I'm healthy. My brain works, my body works. So then I ride a little bit and I'm like, all right, well, what am I going to do here? You know, am I going to, am I, am I going to ride again? Am I going to race in America? Am I going to try the Olympics again? You know, what do I want to do? Um, and I really didn't think about what was next until then. I was like, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to focus on what's in front of me, get my brain right, get my body right. Then I'll start thinking about what's next. And I wrote a little bit, I, you know, it wasn't an easy decision because as a, a competitor, I was 15 minutes away. I still made the main without even, you know, after crashing, I was 15 minutes away from having my third shot. I'm the only man in the world who's made three Olympic mains in BMX racing. And I didn't even have a chance to race it. Right. And that hurts. Mm. And that's hard. You five years to get to that moment. And then you're in an ambulance instead. And then, you know, that competitor in my mind's like, ah, it's only two years till another one, you know, you're good. You're young enough. You could go again. But then, you know, that's, that's the devil on one shoulder. The angel's like, dude, you're alive. Like, you know, how close you were to not being here. Like life is so long. There's so many things you could do. Like you're healthy. Just 
cash your chips in and walk away, you know, as the Vegas reference, but cash your chips in and, and walk away. And so that was a hard thing to kind of come to terms to. Um, and then eventually I just decided that, you know, my future self would be more thankful for preserving my health than taking the risk of, of hitting my head again. And really what it came down to is if like, you know, the universe could have guaranteed me, I'm not going to hit my head again. I'd erase. But the idea of having a permanent brain damage just to try to go to my fourth Olympics just didn't add up. Yeah, I really like the way that you framed it there in terms of what your future self would think. And, you know, that was a massive brain injury. And that, that, that wasn't the only concussion that you had. You know, you spent a lifetime BMX racing. So you've rung your bell on multiple occasions. But then you get this one. And, you know, if you were ever to get another one, it would be really serious. Do you have any long-term protocols now? So, so having a brain injury of this magnitude and what we understand now about CTE and things like that, do you have regular checkups? Do you have things that you have to do to go, you know, how is my brain functioning and, and aging as I move through my life? I don't have any regular checkups. Um, basically, the only thing that they can do is, you know, can I do everything that I could do before my injury to the same level. And do people that know me best say that I seem the same? And the answer to those questions is yes. There's nothing that I could do before that I can't do now. Everybody says I seem the same. So that's really all we have to go off of. Uh, I take better care of my brain in terms of nutrition, not drinking, you know, doing things like that um, now than I maybe would have had I not had the injury just because I know long-term that that's going to be pay dividends in the end. Um, but I don't have any checkups or anything and touch wood. I, I haven't hit my head since. And I, I take step. I still live my life. I still ride my mountain bike and, you know, enjoy my life, ride my BMX sometimes, but I don't take any unnecessary risks and I just do what I can to avoid um, potential injury. Yeah. Have you heard of a guy called Max Lugavere? I've not. He's a dietitian, and he might be something different, but he specializes in that. So his mother um, suffered from Alzheimer's, and it upset him so much, he really did a deep dive into nutrition and what you eat for brain health. So I'll send you a link after this. And, um, you know, he, he's maturing on that journey, and he's learning different things. But there's a lot around what you can eat to, to for, for brain health, you know, and olive oils, meats, fish, really, really good information. So I'll send that to you. You might find that of interest. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see it. So you make the decision to to move out of BMX and we start to get into different things. Before we leave BMX completely, I've got a few quick fire questions that I'm going to quickly ask you. So we'll get some quick questions, quick answers. Best track you've ever raced on? so hard to pick one the ones that come to mind would be Sleeman in brisbane australia sarasota in florida and i really liked copenhagen in denmark racer that you most admire the most that isn't you this is gonna hurt stay because he was my biggest rival uh but watching what joris has done over the course of 14 years is impressive uh, from, you know, winning his first world championship in 2011 to he's going to be a contender for the world championships in 2024. Um, and that's impressive. That's a long career. Is there anyone that that's up and coming that we should be watching out for? Um, there's always somebody, uh, I think Isaac Kennedy's going to surprise this year. I think, you know, not, not that he's an up and comer. I mean, he's established, but I think he's going to take a leap this year. 
Um, and other than that, I I don't know anybody else that comes to mind. Sean Day is a young American who's got some potential. Um, but it's so hard because there's been a lot of 16, 17, 18-year-olds that you thought had all this potential in the world, but then very rarely do they pan out. Big Hill or Little Hill? Young me would have said Big Hill. The older I got, the more I liked the Little Hill. I liked the Little Hill. Clips or flats? Clips. Carbon or 4130? Carbon. Squats or deadlifts? Racer me would have said squats, retired me likes a deadlift. Uphill or downhill sprints? I'm, I mean, I'm going to waffle here. Uphill if you're getting ready for small hill stuff, downhill if you're getting ready for supercross. Fantastic. Racing indoors or racing outdoors? Indoors, but on a big track, like the Grands. The Grands. Monster or Red Bull? Monster. Come <laughs> on now. Red Bull didn't want me. They didn't. They, they were picking between me and Corbin Shaw in 2010. They picked Corbin. Final one. Should, could time trials make a meaningful comeback for someone who's the winningest time trial racer? I liked time trials. Now, I think that the, the so my answer is yes. I think that the, the thing that people misunderstand is they said it's not BMX racing, and it's not, and that's okay. It's different. It's, it's a completely different thing than eight people on the track at the same time. And I think if people approached it like that and they looked at it a little bit differently, um, it would be easier to enjoy. Now, I do understand watching 100 dudes take a lap gets really redundant, but I think at the Olympic level, watching 24 of the best riders go for absolute broke, you would see five to 10 of the most amazing laps you've ever seen. And you would see five to 10 of the most spectacular crashes that you have ever seen by guys trying to go too hard. Yeah, I think I tend to agree. I tend to agree. So we've made the decision to leave the sport in, in terms of being a you know an athlete competing. Obviously, you're attached to it. You're coaching, you're brand ambassador for Chase remaining. Um, yep. Where, where do you even start? You know, have you started to, at which point have you started to go, actually, I think my career might go in this way. You know, I know through winning the gold medal has been a demand in your story. So you're on the public speaking circuit, but what else does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I went to the university when I was competing. So I graduated in 2020 with a degree in business marketing. So, you know, I, I had a, a, a number of options when I was done and that was something I did by design, but then it's also harder because it's like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Right. And I, and most people have to make that decision to 20. I just, I, did, I got to wait till I was 30. Um, so I did, I interned a little bit with my agent and I thought about going with the agency route and doing some sports management stuff, but you know, that wasn't quite for me. Uh, didn't, didn't enjoy the 24 hour, seven days a week phone being on. Um, you know, and then I been doing some brand ambassadors and BMX coaching. And then I just got a random phone call one day from a, a local TV station here in Vegas that I had done some work with in the past. And they asked me if I wanted to host a TV show or audition. So I auditioned and I did that and I've been doing that. And it's been a blast. And, um, you know, I might try to follow in the footsteps of TJ Lavin, another Vegas local who was a BMXer and now hosts a TV show for MTV um, and kind of see, see where that takes me. Outdoor Nevada, PBS show. Yep, we go all around the state, highlighting the, the natural beauty um, of my state. I saw you fly fishing the other day. It, you, you make a, be a better BMX racer than you do a fly fisherman. 100%. I will not argue with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so what's it like making a TV show? It's it's cool. I've always been on the other side, right, where somebody's interviewing me and the show's about me. This is my first time that where I'm interviewing somebody else and the show is about them and I'm just the host. So it's cool because now I've been on both sides of the coin uh, and I also get to see some of the back end production, the editing, the planning, the different things that go into it. And uh, just like with anything in life, it's it's always really cool to learn about what goes on to kind of put it all together. I think one of, one of my lessons is to excel in life, you've got to be prepared to look like a bit of a fool and you've got to be prepared to learn when you're doing new things. And when you're doing pieces to camera, especially solo, and it's you presenting rather than in a conversation, you're extremely self-conscious. This is, this is my experience, extremely self-conscious when you're trying to do that. How did you find that doing pieces to camera? At what point did you start to stop observing yourself as, a, as, a, as somebody else going like, what's Connor doing? This feels weird. This feels clunky. Um, you know, I, I try to approach it the same way I approach, you know, analyzing my racing and just figure out what did I do well there, continue doing it, what can I be better at? And then asking people who know more than me, asking the producers of the show, asking, uh, you know, having lunch with TJ Lavin and you know, people like that and saying, what can I do to be better? How can I be better? How can I continue to grow? And just taking all the things that I learned through racing and applying it to a different challenge. How big a team puts that show together? Uh, there's four of us on the road. Um, there's a sound guy, two cameramen and myself who are, you know, going up and down to every corner of the state. And then there's an editing team at the PBS station back home who does the editing and then the sound, uh, like the final sound production, the voiceovers, the lines, you know, all that stuff. I don't know exactly how many I haven't been in behind closed doors to see that one, but there's four of us who are out on the road with, uh, all the equipment. What have you found out about Nevada so far that you had no idea existed? There's a whole lot of nothing here. There's, uh, of all the 50 states in America, it is the highest percentage of uh, a state that is owned by the government. So over 80% of Nevada is owned by the federal government. And there's a whole chunk in the middle that we can't go to called Area 51. Yeah, who knows what's going on there. Have you ever <laughs> seen anything strange in Nevada? I mean, that's a pretty broad question. I live in Vegas. <laughs> um, let's get on to, uh, just before we finish, I just want to go on to the public speaking. So I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in the lessons they can take from other people. If I invited you along to talk to, to my team, what would we get from that? What would we get from the Connorfields experience? You get realness. And I think that that is, you know, one of the, the things I really try to, to put forth in my, my keynotes is like, this is just, this is what's real. And I'm not going to, you know, rah, rah, you know, uh, fire everything up and, and not share the, the nitty gritty that goes on in order to reach the highest levels of success in sport. Um, I talk a lot about goal setting. And then accountability to reach a goal. You know, what is it going to take to reach a goal of that magnitude? And how can that be applied to whatever goal it is that you're trying to achieve? Um, you know, and then I, I talk a lot about resilience and the mindset that you have to have uh, to overcome all the obstacles that are going to be thrown at you, you know. And then I talk a lot about mental health as well. And I think that, you know, these this day and age, it's so important. And, you know, obviously, I've gone through the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, you know, from, you know, two month bender in Vegas after winning the Olympics to depression and trying to figure out who I am now that I'm no longer a BMX racer and everything in between. And so there's some 
you know, tangible takeaways and, and, and applicable things that people can use instantly to, you know, take a little bit better care of their mental health. What's one takeaway we could get now from a mental health perspective, you know, to anyone that's experiencing a transition or, or, or loss or a change in what they're doing? Um, what's the one tip that you could give them? What really helped me was to figure out my values, like what was important to me. And so I'm starting kind of from ground zero, trying to reshape a life. So what's important to me? And then when I've identified what's important, that's not easy to identify what the most important three to five things are. And when you do, then you can kind of build a life based around that. Um, and I think it's obviously people have different situations and, and things going on, but I view it as going the, the, the other way from most people. Just this is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to figure out my values. It's like, I'm going to figure out my values, what's important to me. And then I'm going to do something based on them. So you can be true to yourself. Last question. I almost forgot to ask this one, but I really wanted to ask it. So um, a long time ago, you wrote on the garage wall in Sharpie. And I think you got in trouble off your parents for it. And I'm paraphrasing, so you can tell me exactly what you wrote. But you said, I'm going to win the Olympics. So what exactly was it that you wrote? And how serious were you about that goal at that time? Um, I wrote that I'm going to win World 1 and National Age Group 1 and one day be Olympic champion. So I was 15. It was right. It was the morning after I watched the Olympics on TV. And I just was motivated. I was fired up. I had some weights in my garage that I would use. And I just decided that this is what I want to do. And so every time I lifted weights, I would stare at that. Because people talk about massive goals, you know, saying, look, try not, try not to make these smart goals. Get a massive goal and worry about how you're going to achieve it after. But believe in the massive goal. So every time you did weights... That was a real reminder to you. I actually want to do that. And and could you could you visualize you doing it? I visualized it every day for eight years before it happened. So you knew what it was going to feel like. You know, you could almost imagine yourself on the stage, the applause, how you'd feel inside if you were Olympic champion. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, that was how you get to the dog days of training. Brilliant. I really appreciate your time. This has been a fantastic conversation for me, a real treat. Got to learn an awful lot. Uh, good luck with whatever comes next. Good luck with the show. Good luck with the next season. Good luck with whatever TV shows come after. We'll be watching even from far away in Australia and the UK. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Connor. Thanks, Connor.